1: This is Somewhere in the Skies, with Ryan Sprague.
2: Welcome to Episode 4 of Somewhere in the Skies. This is going to be an interesting one. Unlike our previous three episodes, we're going to tackle an aspect of UFOs that often gets overlooked, and that's the parapsychological. Yep, we are going there, so buckle up. But first, I want to start with the following listener email I recently received. It comes to us from Judy Thompson out of Alberta, Canada, and this event occurred to her when she was 14 years old in 1980 off of Man Lake near the town of Ashmont, Judy writes, quote, I was driving home from the small town near our acreage home one late summer afternoon. I had my learner's license and my mom was sitting in the front passenger seat. My grandmother and younger brother were in the back. I had to slow down coming into our subdivision as the road had a sharp bend close to the lake edge. Here is when I noticed something, a black triangle object some distance away, high over the edge of the lake. I stopped and rolled down the window to hear if it made any sound. I thought maybe it could be a helicopter with something hanging under it, but I could not hear anything and it continued to sit motionless in the sky. I remember blurting out something like, what the heck is that, a UFO? I looked at it for a short time and decided to continue driving. I wanted to look more, but I was worried about cars coming up behind me. I was also worried about frightening my mom and grandmother. I knew they would not be open to such things as UFOs, however, I could not stop thinking about that strange object. I continued to drive until I reached the approach to our home. I don't know why I stopped at the approach and looked over my left shoulder and up into the sky, but I did, and there it was. It was directly over the road, and now was just a little higher than the treetops. I quickly put the car in park and shut off the engine. I felt a sense of excitement to get another chance to have a look at this thing. I got out of the car, leaving the door open, and gazed up at the craft hovering above me. No one else got out of the car, and no one said a word while I was looking at it. The object indeed was not black but a dull charcoal gray color. It made no sound and had no visible lights. It was about 30 to 40 feet across. The bottom of it had sections with some type of pattern, maybe symbols. However, I cannot remember the details very well. I wanted to see if it had any windows or identifiable markers, so I walked around to the front of the car to the other side to get a better look. The sides, front, and top were solid with no windows, markers, or seams of any kind. As I was standing and gazing up at the craft, I felt a sense of awe and wonder and I became aware of my thoughts being read. This may sound really weird, and I probably would leave this part out if it were not for the fact that I have come across other people's accounts of having similar experiences. I had a real feeling that this was an amazing event and that this craft was not from our world. I wanted them, whoever they were, to know that I was greatly honored to have had the chance of a lifetime to experience something so amazing. I started to think about what the occupants may look like for the first time, and I felt a sense of fear creeping in. I don't know if that was the reason, but the craft started to move, gracefully gliding like it was on ice. It moved a little forward, then made a 90 degree turn facing east towards Man Lake. It started moving slowly in this direction, but then suddenly accelerated at an unreal speed and was gone in a split second. No sound. No smoke, no lights. It was just gone. The leaves of the tall poplar trees that surrounded the area were completely undisturbed. I never spoke to anyone about this event, not even my family. It was not until 2009, while recovering from surgery, that I really began some serious research on this topic, and have been hooked ever since. I do feel that it is important to share my story." Wow. Yes, Judy, it is important for you to share your story, and I can't thank you enough for sending that to me. It reminds me so much of my own UFO sighting when I was 12 years old. But what intrigues me most is the feeling that she felt. Her thoughts were somehow being read, somehow being controlled by whatever she was seeing. This psychic aspect has been, like Judy mentioned, reported by many individuals. In fact, I've interviewed dozens of people who've claimed the same thing. They feel some sort of mental connection to whatever they're seeing and experiencing. And this goes even deeper when people report elements of high strangeness, parapsychological events, and even paranormal incidents occurring during a UFO sighting or even after. And that's exactly what I spoke to today's guest about. Susan Demeter St. Clair is a professional research assistant author, editor, and sci-experimenter. Her research interests include individual and institutional responses to anomalies and exceptional human experiences, and how they interact and enact change within groups and large institutions. She has established both Para-Researchers of Ontario and Paranormal Studies and in Inquiry Canada as online educational resources for those wishing to explore the subject of anomalous events she has conducted field research on unusual light phenomena and lectured on this subject at the ontario institute for studies in education at the university of toronto she is currently collaborating with eric oulet phd of the canadian forces college on new approaches to ufo studies through the lens of scientific parapsychology today i speak to susan about various cases she has personally researched through this lens of parapsychology. And just a warning, we do get a special guest by her dog, Max, in this interview. So I was deeply honored by that. So, without further ado, let's get to the interview with Susan Demeter St. Clair.
1: Okay, let's dive deep.
2: Let's dive. Hey guys, I am here today with Susan Demeter St. Clair. She is a... UFO researcher, amongst many other things, which we will talk about tonight. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us today, Susan.
1: Well, thank you for having me on the show. I'm I'm really excited to finally be talking to you.
2: Yes, and, you know, we've spoken off air a few times now, and uh, I was really drawn to your work through a uh, mutual project we're working on, And that's Robbie Graham's UFOs Reframing the Debate, uh, a new book that's out this May 2017. And we all were given an advanced copy, and uh, I was immediately uh, attracted to your essay. It was something that I've been diving into lately with the whole UFO topic. And that is connecting it both to the paranormal and to the uh, the psychological, the psychosocial, um, and everything in between. Uh, so, yeah, we're definitely going to dive into some th- some of that tonight. But um, first, the first question I always have, Susan, for anyone who's into these topics, is how did you get involved? What got you interested in specifically the UFO issue?
1: Well, I, I would have to say that it was the phenomena itself that sort of um, initiated me into, into the, the UFO topic. Um, when I was small, I, when I was a child, I, I had had some strange experiences. But as we all do, we kind of, you know, we put that off to childhood. And I didn't really connect them to UFOs. I connected them more to ghosts. Uh, but when I was 23, I had a close encounter with a UFO, with my uh, brother-in-law, and being a young adult and, and having another witness there, that really is what, I, I'd like to call it an initiation, because that, that was the moment that really pro- propelled me into this sort of study and research, and I've kind of been on it off and on ever since. But I, yeah, but th- I would say it was being a personal experience that prior to that, I mean, I, I had a basic interest, like anyone else, maybe through pop culture. I had seen Close Encounters of a Third Kind, which is mm. a great
2: film. Yes, and we will talk e- about that later. <laughs> yeah,
1: E.T. and all these fun things. So i but I wasn't really into UFOs at that point. Like yeah. I didn't really know too much about the subject.
2: And, uh, Uh, this initial experience, where did that happen? If you don't mind me asking.
1: Uh, that happened in Toronto. Uh, at the time I was living, um, on a 10th floor condominium
0: and it was
1: rather late at night. And I, I was, uh, with my, my husband at the time and my brother-in-law and we were watching, uh, an an Elvira, Mistress of the Dark film. Mm. I'll never, I'll never forget that because this, this experience was so burned into my mind. (laughs) And, uh, and it was getting late, and at the time I had, like, sliding glass doors onto this 10th floor patio, and I had two very small children with me at the time. And I was in the habit of uh, of locking those doors before I went to bed every night. And so as the movie was ending, Elvira, I got up, and it was about 1 a.m., and it was a weeknight, too. I think it was, like, a Monday night. And I, I walked over to the sliding glass doors, and I noticed this large red Sort of light hovering out over by the nuclear plant in uh, the Pickering Nuclear Generating Station on the north shore of Lake Ontario, which I had this clear view of, uh, and and it just struck me, and I thought at first, you know, is this a reflection from the television off the glass? Because it was just such an odd thing, and, and I realized no, it was something out there. So I I went out onto the onto the patio onto the balcony. And I was staring at it, and I realized there, there's something really strange about this i i just it couldn't I could not comprehend what I was looking at. It was so weird and I called out to my brother in law unfortunately at this point my uh my then husband was fast asleep on the couch he had he had fallen asleep during the film, so he briefly recalls hearing me yell out but didn't come out and he, he to this day regrets that he never did. Mm-hmm. But my, my brother-in-law came out and we were looking at it and I was saying, what is this? What, you know, th- and discounting things in my head, like this is not a plane. This doesn't have flashing lights. I'm not hearing sounds <laughs> like what, what is this giant glowing red sort of octagonish shaped thing? Mm-hmm. And my brother-in-law said to me, he was the first one who said, I, I think that's a UFO. And and it just like it kind of we both clicked and we were like kind of freaking out and holding each other and there was like, <laughs> goose goose flesh and, and, and all that. And I turned around to him and for whatever reason, and I don't really 100 percent know why to this day, I said, they know we can see them. And at that point, it sort of almost imploded in on itself into a smaller red ball of light that was pulsating Mm -hmm. and it shot straight up into the sky and we were floored and I didn't sleep that night. We sat, we sat up uh, and we just kept talking it out and like, what was this? I I remember looking at the, at the street, there was a single car driving back. It was very late at night. And I think I was thinking maybe this guy saw it too. I I was looking in the papers. I I didn't know who to call. Um, but I called my dad and my dad was a scientist and he was uh, a pilot and I I called him up and I told him what happened and I said, "I, I saw this UFO and thankfully I had him in my life because he said to me, if you say you saw a UFO, then that's what you saw. So there was no ridicule there. And then he told me about his own UFO experience from the 1950s, which I hadn't known up until that point. Oh,
2: wow. So yeah, your essentially your initial experience opened up the floodgates as it were to uh past experiences. That's amazing.
1: Yes, yes, and it's it's it was it was really amazing and uh but I didn't know I I really I wanted to find out more information. I didn't know who to contact and I really didn't know anything about the topic per se. So I went to the library cuz this is pre-internet days mm-hmm. and uh and and I took up some books and and they were from Dr. Hynek, and uh, and I thought okay here's a scientist and you know he he sounds reasonable and there was a little contact information at the back so I wrote a letter to Dr. Hynek at this time I had I had no idea he had already passed away and uh, unfortunately the the letter was returned to me. Um, You know, it came back undeliverable, so the address had been incorrect at that time, to QFOS. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I kept the letter, and then I kind of, at the time I had small children, so I just kind of put it away and and just kept the so that I had the initial, all that stuff, because I I wrote in all the details. And it wasn't until several years later that I got involved with um, MUFON, Uh, Not as an investigator with them, but just involved, like, with speaking with investigators from MUFON. And they actually did an investigation uh, and found out that there were many, many other sightings involving the Pickering Nuclear Station.
0: Wow. And.
1: Yeah, and this was a few years later. This was at the very beginning. This was in the in the internet bulletin board days. So it was it was all UFOs and sci-fi and stuff in the old days of the internet. So, oh yeah, I remember. <laughs> so, yeah, so it wasn't hard to find someone to talk to, and so they they did the investigation, and that kind of wet my appetite more or less um, to start looking into things. And uh, I had a girlfriend of mine was, at the time, um, really interested in these spook lights that were in Ontario, up near the Peterborough area of Ontario, and we just started investigating them, and I was talking to different people, Ted Phillips, uh, the famous, you know, right hand there of Dr. Hynek, he was very helpful to me, and this is back in the 90s, and it just sort of, it started snowballing from there, until (laughs) I'm at this point now, so... Quite a large portion of my life now has been dedicated to UFOs, but that was the first experience, and that was really what I would say my initiation into the topic of UFOs.
2: Wow, I, I it's I, I got chills a little bit only because a the nuclear facility sightings always give me chills. Um, yeah. But b how much your initial experience sort of mirrors my path as well um, in terms I, I'd of I'd
1: love to hear more.
2: Yeah, definitely. I had ah. a triangular sighting at the age of 12. Uh this was also off of uh basically Lake Ontario uh in upstate New York. This was in the St. Lawrence River area um of the Thousand Islands. I saw a triangular formation. This is back in 1995 and uh very similar. You know, I I didn't see any sort of blinking lights. It was very stationary over my head. Uh, It was coasting over the water towards your neck of the woods, heading north to Canada. Um, I screamed for my father to come out. He sees the tail end of it, says it's a plane. Um, But I knew differently, you know, at that point, it was directly over my head when I first saw it, making no noise. Uh, And after that, Susan, I did the same thing. I went to the library. I started taking out books because what else do you do at, um, you know, where do you exactly turn? I was 12 years old. I didn't know about MUFON, QFOS, any of this stuff. Uh, I wanted to report it to the police, but my dad said, no, he didn't want, he didn't want <laughs> to get involved. Uh, I can't blame him. Um, but yeah, it, it seems like we've had very similar paths, um, from that initial experience, uh into what we do today and that's researching and investigating these things uh, now i know you said you were not a official mufon investigator but you did personally research a very compelling case out of uh cape croker ontario and uh i know the witnesses uh would like to remain confidential but could you would you mind giving us a little taste of what this case was that you investigated um Having to do with the idea of high strangeness, and we'll talk more about that after. But uh, I would love to hear more about this case if you wouldn't mind sharing.
1: Oh, absolutely! But um, just just very quickly before we get into that, I'm just going to, because of your own experience, I'm going to relate something to you. So get get prepared to be chilled again. Ooh, okay. <laughs> um, so I had started investigating, and 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 not really I affiliated with any group I more or less started my own little kind of group of people um, that were loosely doing their own thing and and we were researching together these spook lights but over time I started getting more involved and 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 to be honest disheartened with some of what was going on in Uf, the greater ufology all the egos and everybody knows you know oh, these yeah. experts so I became quite disheartened and I ended up joining a skeptical organization which was skeptics canada so wow. I, was kind of being dri- I was kind of being driven to that point until a fateful day in 2001 where i was not investigating anything i was out with a friend i didn't have a camera and i didn't even have a cell phone at that point this is 2001 and we were walking along this pathway in ajax ontario along the lake and I don't know if if you can guess what's coming next but mm-hmm. there was a UFO experience and it involved a diamond shaped craft mm-hmm. at very close range and seeing that um, it just totally radically changed my mind and again I couldn't be a skeptic anymore
0: mm-hmm.
1: I, I even though these people were great and I, I learned a lot from them in, in, in other ways you know how to find frauds and sleight of hand and this kind of i just i could not be a skeptic anymore so again another initiation another guide path but when you were talking about your triangle yeah that that just brought that right back to me and this was it looked like a spaceship it was very close range um i was quite a a, a, a much older at that point um Closer to my earlier 30s and it was just it blew me away and that at that point I just I couldn't go that skeptical path I knew that there is something out there that we just don't understand it's not of our known reality at this point.
2: Wow. Yeah, I mean, and no one can blame you for taking the skeptical route. I think uh first of all, skepticism is essential in what we do. Uh we have to remain grounded. We have to rule out every possibility. And the, you know, the job of a UFO researcher is to try to find a prosaic answer. Uh that's what we want. When there's nothing left, then that's when we truly have an unknown so wow you went from yes. believer to skeptic to believer again i love it
1: <laughs> exactly so so now back to cape croaker which is um it, it is an, a native an aboriginal reservation uh that's about two hours north of um toronto and it's in an area near wyerton i don't know if you're familiar with our groundhog wyerton willie it's up near that area okay. of the province so up near lake huron And uh, they had contacted me. They um, had had family visiting. And some of the family, um, they were outside and they were having this bonfire. This was during a celebration, a festival, a powwow, over a weekend for that. And uh, so some of the family members were out. And one of them saw this very strange light descending from the sky. And then the other family members that were sitting around the bonfire also were drawn up to look. And what I mean by drawn up is they all heard a voice in their head simultaneously calling out to them to look, to look at these lights and the lights descended down and they just, they had this just miraculous sort of UFO experience, but it was almost as if they had had a telepathy between themselves simultaneously with whatever the light was that they were experiencing that came down and sort of joined them in their, in their celebratory sort of bonfire. Mm-hmm. So to me, these are the types of cases that I, I am truly interested in. And when I was able to talk to the witnesses, I was able to find out some more personal details about them. That was suggestive to me that this UFO was probably very symbolic and unique to their family and reservation circumstances at the time, and I wish I could give you more details on that, but in in this case, I have given them confidentiality, so I can't really delve too much into their personal of course. details yeah but but it's almost as if. Um, and, and this is very uh, Jungian uh, it, it, that the UFO was symbolic to their circumstances, so it had a very synchronistic sort of meaning to them, mm-hmm. which I found very interesting. And, and when and I, you,
2: I'm sorry to interrupt. When you say Jungian, we're, we're referring to Carl Jung, correct? The uh...
1: yes. Yes, the, the father of the yes the father of depth psychology yeah
2: okay and, and so what you're sort of saying is that whatever they were seeing uh was a parapsychological in a sense but also uh, related to their almost their social anxiety at the time of what they were dealing with
1: It was related to their personal circumstances, I believe. So, yes, there is a symbolism there, much like um, Yeah, I didn't realize it at the time. But that first UFO that I saw was a glowing red, pulsating, shaped like a stop sign. Mm -hmm. It was octagon, but it didn't really click into my head at the time that what I was seeing was almost like this giant stop sign in the sky. And then later on. When I started thinking along these terms, I was able to kind of relate that there was some symbolism there, perhaps for me personally. Interesting. Um, so, uh, you know, yeah. almost what we're
2: perceiving, the shape of it, the size of it, the uh, luminosity of it could be directly correlated to uh, our own perception of what we either want it to be or something we might be dealing with in our own lives. Uh, oh, God, this is,
1: <laughs> Yeah. we will or dissect some, this more you know, like, for sure. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Wow. Um, so, so that's that was the Cape Croker case, um, and of course, for me, I always try to leave people feeling a little bit better than when they contact me because these are very emotional experiences for people. Um, so, not with everybody, but for some of them, it's really it's it's life altering, and it's very spiritual in some senses. So, I, I just I tried to impart on them that they're not alone, that although I can't give them an answer to exactly what they saw, um, other, other people have these experiences all the time, Yeah, you know, and I, I don't care how weird they think it might sound. Uh, I want to hear it all. I want all the details. Tell me, tell me everything because that's where with the high strangeness, especially we, we may start seeing patterns or, Get little insights or clues that, that, that may help us if not resolve this, certainly ask better questions. And that's that's kind of where I'm at. With Absolutely.
2: The UFO. Yeah, better and new questions. Uh yes. You know, I, I find myself doing the same thing. It's like, all right. If you're gonna tell me what happened, just unload. Give me the raw story. Give it give me the weirdest shit you got. Let's do yeah, it. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Let's get real. Let's, Let's get, get real. right down with this story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. No,
2: Susan, you <laughs> use the term high strangeness. Uh now for any listeners who might not be familiar with this phrase, uh, it took me a while to really truly uh find a good definition of it. Could you explain to us what you mean by high strangeness in relation to a UFO sighting or encounter, where this term may have come from?
1: Um, I believe it was initially coined by uh, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, Mm -hmm. uh, who was the astronomer who was a skeptic initially, a scientist, and, uh, and, and worked on Project Blue Book for the U.S. Air Force. I believe it was he that First mentioned it because it's in his address to the United Nations in 1978, and um, basically what he meant is that these are the cases. I mean, UFOs are weird enough as as they stand, (laughs) but um, these are cases where we start getting into the sometimes absurd or very strange The 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 parapsychological aspects where people feel like as in the, the, the Cape Croker case where they all were hearing voices and they felt compelled at the same time to look at something. Um, so these types of cases where there may be telepathy or even poltergeist activity, um, and other just strange aspects, uh, humanoids seeing the occupants or the pilots of these things. Um, that's what he meant in regards to high strangeness. Okay. So not just I saw light in the sky for maybe 20 seconds and then it was gone, but things that involve very strange, is seemingly out of our known reality, events that occur along with the UFO.
2: Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah. And now in terms of that that high strangeness, you do in uh, your essay in this uh, upcoming book, you, you talk about... Pop culture and how it plays a pretty big role in terms of UFOs. Our editor, Robbie Graham, wrote an entire book on this subject. Absolutely. Of, yeah, how the media, how uh, pop culture, <clears throat> uh, Hollywood in particular, can have a a huge effect on uh, the perception of the UFO phenomenon, and this give and take, give and take of what's real, what's not. What did they take from the UFO phenomenon? What do what does the UFO phenomenon take from it? Um, And you actually focus on one of the benchmarks for ufology in terms of Hollywood, and that was Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about how this film did use this high strangeness aspect?
1: Well, the one thing about the film that's really striking is that Spielberg actually did go to UFO experts. Uh, It was Dr. Hynek. And uh, I th- believe Dr. Valet also, although he, he plays, like there was a character developed around Jacques Valet. Mm-hmm. I believe he was also a consultant. I may be wrong on that, but I know that Dr. Heineck for sure mm-hmm. was a consultant on the film. So he had at this point amassed a lot of material on experiencers and people.
2: He was also in the have... film too, correct?
1: Yes, he played a cameo in the, in the <laughs> film. That's so, so in the, cool. When, Yes, when the mothership comes down, there's there's Dr. Heineck, which is super cool. Yeah. Um, basically, uh, it it really gave um, it gave audiences a taste of what a lot of these experiencers were describing. In that, the lead protagonist, Roy and Jillian. The other, the, the, the mother whose child gets involved with the aliens, they start experiencing all sorts of things, synchronicity, so meaningful coincidence. They started feeling telepathy along with the UFOs. Um, so it really presented UFOs as something that may be physical, but also psychic. So there's a a a real a physical reality to it but there's also this psychic reality and as we go through the film um this sort of builds with with the, both characters and their sort of the ESP and and all these other neat things that are going on so it's one of my favorite films anyway despite that it's it, it's pro ETH which I'm not
2: uh, ooh interesting <laughs> um, we'll have to touch on that
1: yeah um I, I don't. I don't hate the ETH. I just. I, I just feel after seventy years, it's not really. It's got us nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that the the idea of, of aliens visiting in like little spaceships is kind of silly at this point. But that's my own feeling. I could be wrong. I I could be wrong. But <laughs> I, I'm kind of. I'm concentrating on on other areas right now, looking for those better questions. But <laughs> I, it it was to me the film. Is still a classic. I, I try to watch it at least once a year.
2: <laughs> it's amazing how well it holds up, uh, to be honest. It does. I watched it recently, and, you know, some of the special effects, you know, it is what it is. But uh, yeah. the entire, you know, narrative of this story and the, uh, the research that went into it is fascinating. And even at that time that they were thinking about high strangeness or the psychic aspect of a UFO encounter is amazing. Clearly, this aspect of the phenomenon has been going on for a while, or Spielberg would not have put this into the film, uh, in my opinion. So uh, that, you know, while he does mix the ETH with this psychic aspect, uh, I do find it intriguing that you're moving away from the ETH. uh, And I know many other people who are doing the same. So, uh, yeah, wow, this the film holds up very well in that term, then
1: absolutely. And you know, it's, it's, it's funny because Dr. Hynek was the, the main consultant for the film and he as well in, in later years, um, decided that it was more of a paranormal thing or that there was a strong paranormal component. In fact, he even sort of mentions that in the UN address, as far as high strangeness and the absurdity goes, um, which is why, in some ways, skeptics or sci- some you know more mainstream scientists kind of shy away because it there is this absurd factor to this, but it does it does exist. Um, but so Heineck was kind of with us, so we're 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 not really reinventing the wheel here. But there were people already in the 1970s who were kind of on board with the type of thinking that we're seeing in, in Robbie's book.
2: Right, and you know yeah. it, it seems like throughout the decades since. Project Blue Book was uh, terminated, that the, and within the subculture of the UFO community, the ETH sort of took over, uh, and these things that Valet were talking about and Hynek were talking about, uh, they sort of got swept under the rug for a while. We had the entire New Age and metaphysical movement happen, but uh, there's there's so much more to it, I think, than... (sighs) either camps are giving it credit for, uh, whether you're a nuts and bolts scientific ufologist or a metaphysical, uh, experiencer ufologist, uh, there is that middle ground that I think is so understated. And I think it's, it is making a comeback right now. And like you said, we're, we're not bringing forth new, uh, concepts. We're only bringing them back into the, you know, the focus and trying to build upon them. Uh, Exactly. It's fascinating. Um, Now, you did mention paranormal, Susan, and I want to touch on something that I found very interesting. You did use the word poltergeist. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I know we have so many connotations to this idea of a poltergeist being connected to uh, young women in particular. This isn't always the case. But you did... Research a case about a young girl who was 12 years old back in the 1950s Uh, Would you mind touching on this case in terms of uh, what this girl experienced with the UFO phenomenon?
1: Oh, absolutely Um, and now what's interesting with her is um, I was able to do an in-depth interview with her and this was not her first experience Uh, She did have an experience uh, at an even younger age. um, I think she's around seven or eight years old where she saw what she perceived as little elves driving cars down the street.
2: Wow, okay.
1: Yes, and and I thought that immediately when she told me that I jumped immediately to Jacques Vallée's idea of Passport in Magonia. Yes, the folklore uh, aspect. And the folklore aspect. But when she was 12 she had an experience, again, where she was, uh, it was late at night, they were living at the time in Port de here in Ontario, on the South Shore, overlooking Lake Ontario, and they, um, she was compelled to look out the window, this was late at night, she was woken up, and, uh, and she looks out the window, and she sees all these lights over the lake, sort of coming in and out of the lake and, and, and there's just like the sky was filled and she was so overwhelmed by this and she tried to wake up her family but they they just, they wouldn't wake up and and that in itself is something else that's very interesting and, uh, and she did, she told her family all about this the next day and uh, again, the following night the same thing happened she gets up and she sees these lights, these balls of light that are all like within this, this area of the lake. And, uh, and of course we know through, through other work that, you know, the lake is a hotbed for mm-hmm. UFOs going, going way, way back long before the airports. Um, and again, she, she tried to wake up her family, but they just, they would not wake up to, to view this. And this is this was something very profound for her at the time, and uh, and interestingly enough, in 2007, she also saw a triangle UFO much much later. So you, you can imagine this is she had this these experiences when she was a child, right? And then later, as an older adult, with three other witnesses, and saw this triangle. Um, so again, someone who has had more than one very strange experience but that was an interesting case to me and and I thought you know it's very difficult now because of course you know we're talking 1954 is when this happened but it would have been interesting at the time to maybe look at the dynamics of what was going on with in her own life and in the household and the family and see if there was anything maybe symbolic to her in regards to the UFOs appearing all of a sudden uh, what was going on in her life? Uh, was there something that she couldn't express, you know, which is what we, we parapsychologists think in regards to the poltergeist. It's one working hypothesis that uh, people have these things going on, these anxieties in their lives, and they're not able to properly express them. So they become expressed in the outer world as PK or uh, a poltergeist. So knocking on the on the walls and other strange kind of crazy stuff like that, Mm -hmm. Um, which if you look at poltergeist cases and some of the patterns within them and patterns within UFOs, there are some similarities and commonalities in there, which I touch upon, I believe, in the essay. Yeah.
2: Um, Would you care to uh, maybe give us one or two of those connections? that you think might connect UFOs with poltergeist.
1: Well, one of the common things is the falling leaf pattern that mm-hmm. you see that people describe in UFO cases where they feel that they see this craft and it's doing the falling leaf pattern. This has been recorded in numbers of cases, but it's also recorded in poltergeist cases where you might have an object that, again, falls, like that falling leaf kind of... Um, I'm doing this with a hand gesture here and you can't even see me. <laughs> if you can imagine a leaf gently falling down to the ground. Right. So, I mean, that's just one thing that I've noticed in regards. But there are there are other commonalities and sometimes they dovetail. Sometimes people will have a uh, UFO experience and then they will go on to have poltergeist-like experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, and, and sometimes it's in reverse. I... I did a case in, in Ontario uh, with a young couple who were experiencing um, a poltergeist activity in their home, and then they both had a, uh, a mass UFO experience. And this time they did call the police, and uh, police were not too happy about that because, you know, the UFOs are not committing crimes. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so you, might, you might get a sympathetic person, officer who might, you know, have had his own UFO experience or her own UFO experience so they they can relate and they'll be okay with you. But for the vast majority, no, I do not suggest calling police.
2: It's a little Um, above their pay grade. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, you know, Um, but in that case, it was almost, it it was reversed. They were having apparitions. They were having uh, like classic poltergeist type stuff. And there was a lot of tension in the family at the time. And it just sort of almost exploded into this this UFO experience.
2: Wow. I I spoke to a woman in Michigan here in the United States who had a very similar experience, a triangular sighting. uh, This was back in the early 2000s with her daughter. And A, they had completely different perceptions. The mother felt calm and collected, didn't hear anything when she looked up at this, while the daughter was absolutely terrified, felt threatened, and uh, heard an unbearably loud noise as the triangle was over their home. Uh, And then all this crazy shit started to happen in their home. Uh, Poltergeist activity. Uh, Their lights and their cable would go out all the time. Uh, An electrician came to check out what was going on couldn't explain it, had his own UFO sighting over the home while he was there, uh, wow. and said he would never come back. It absolutely terrified him. He said, I'm sorry. Uh, and this guy had been, you know, sort of the the neighborhood electrician for so long. Uh, he said, I'm sorry. I, I, I just can't, I can't do this anymore. Um, so this all culminated into, um... The young daughter, the mother, and another daughter, who claimed to have seen shadow people in the home, um, even a small being that would visit her in the night, um, this completely destroyed the family dynamic. Uh, They all became very introverted. They all uh, were having different experiences after this initial sighting. And for them, they found uh, prayer. They prayed for whatever was going on, to go away. And for the daughters, it did. For the mother, Mm -hmm. it still remains. But uh, it it brings me, it harkens me back to that whole idea that this high strangeness plays a huge aspect. And we're not just talking about little green men, you know, coming down, zipping around and being like, hey, guys, we're here, bye. Uh, This is having huge implications on the humans back here on the ground. So... Ugh. Oh,
1: absolutely, and and that's the thing too is that, um, and I have I have spoken to more than one astronomer um, or astrophysicist, and and the fact of the matter is is that yes, we have SETI, and SETI is completely different than ufology. They're looking for for life out there in the cosmos, and and I believe there probably is somewhere,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but the UFO problem is terrestrial; it always has been. It occurs to human beings on this planet. Because we have no proof that it's anywhere else, it's mm-hmm. just it's it's here, um, and and that's why I'm I'm trying to focus on the one tangible that we do have, and that is the human being that's experiencing this. Uh, and and I will I will posit this to you as well. Um, if this were little green men behind these these experiences, why would prayer work? <laughs>
0: exactly.
1: <laughs> you know why? Why would they would they even know what prayer is? No, no. Right. So. Uh, and that is actually not unusual. I have come across many cases and more uh, in line with the abductees where some of them feel that they have invoked um you know Jesus if they're Christian, and it works mm-hmm. so what what is that telling us about the phenomena that that prayer can help you know put it away you know. Right. Or, or, Something tells
2: me if, if this was an alien invasion, you know, on one family. Uh <laughs> prayer isn't the first shield that I think they would uh they they'd be like, Oh, okay, we gotta go. They're they're praying. Let's get out of here. Um it just doesn't make sense. It's not logical. Um Exactly. But, uh the idea of the UFO problem is terrestrial, uh that is a term I'm going to be using from now on, so you might want to copyright that and make some money <laughs> off of it because it's That's so okay. true. We can
1: share. We can share. We can <laughs> all
2: share. That's what we have to do as researchers. Share your yeah. goddamn information, guys. Come on.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs>
2: Stop saving it for a rainy day. Um, <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Well,
2: something else I want to actually touch on is this idea that if – if these ufo sightings are happening to an individual um you know we have mass sightings obviously they happen all the time but there's something to this idea that whatever is happening uh whatever is in control of these anomalies in the sky it almost feels as though they want to only be seen or only affect one person at a time uh We have so many sightings that have occurred to only one individual, no cooperating witnesses. Uh, But there seems to be something to that, Susan. I don't know if you agree. Um, It seems to be happening individual by individual. We're getting these gradual, small disclosures, as it were. And that seems to really tie into this idea of uh, hitting the psyche one by one.
1: It, it does and it also kind of dovetails with what we know um has been documented about ghosts uh which has been documented a little bit more than than ufos as far as like the society for Psychical research and that um where you have you could have an apparition that is seen by maybe out of a group of five two people will see a solid looking person uh another person might see nothing uh and you know, and the other person might just see a shadow or or something else that's just you know not not cooperating what the others are seeing. so you you see that as well there, and, and also the single witness as opposed to multiple witnesses. Um, so so that is possible. But we do have also UFO waves, as you know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and one of the things that I've been doing and concentrating on um, with my uh, collaborator, uh, Dr. Eric Ouellette, who wrote the book Illuminations, yes, is, yes, yes, yes. Yes, is how um, how looking at what is going on in the greater society at the time, uh, how that may affect uh, UFOs in a global consciousness on a mass scale, such as, and we concentrated on the Belgian wave um, of 1990, and the, uh, the concurrent Russian wave of 1989, Um UFO waves in Europe at that time and what is interesting is you have multiple witnesses it was very well documented you have um, the uh, the Belgian Air Force cooperating with ufologists it was a really neat time but if you start looking at what was going on in Europe with the fall of the Berlin Wall with the crumbling of the Soviet Union you can only imagine the anxieties and and the concerns of all these people at that time. And you have a UFO wave over NATO headquarters.
2: Wow. Yeah.
1: So so just think about that. If you have all these people who, was this a cry for help? Was this help me, you know, Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: pay attention, look, you know, I mean, we don't know what, I personally believe that the UFOs are symbolic and they can be very personalized, but I can, I also feel they can be symbolic and and be meaningful to a greater society. You see? absolutely.
2: So. I I think and yeah that that's where the idea of a individual sighting or a mass sighting. uh how far does the impact reach? You know, um, you look at the Phoenix Lights back in the you know, here in America, Mm -hmm. uh, you look at the 1952 wave over Washington, uh, clearly during cold war times. Um, yeah, very interesting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And, uh, and, and, and when you start kind of looking, concentrating away from what the craft might have been, because you can have all sorts of different types of crafts, um, and shapes and, and all sorts of different, I, I don't know how many, I've lost count how many humanoids there could possibly be these these <laughs> supposed pilots. Um, they're all very individual as well. Um, but if you start concentrating on the, the people, then you might start getting more insights. And again, back to better questions, right? Because this is something that ufologists don't really do. Mm-hmm. they they will take down reports they want to know what time they want to know what it looked like they want to know the weather conditions they're trying to debunk and find there's a place for that but it's really not getting us any closer to what this might be in mm-hmm. my opinion we've had 70 years of that we need something new
2: agreed <laughs> <laughs> Seems like we're preaching to uh, the choir, as it were, between us. But I, I think oh, yeah. this this is the kind of thing that's going to wake people up. Um, the idea that we're not just dealing with an alien presence from some other planet coming to Earth to warn us of something. There's far more complex questions to be asked than that. Um, it is a product of the time when uh, B-Sci-Fi movies were coming out. It is a product mm-hmm. of... Even the Kenneth Arnold, uh, the inception of the modern UFO era, the Kenneth Arnold sighting, which was misconstrued to begin with, uh, with the whole flying saucer aspect. Um, yes, it's it's fascinating. It really is. Um,
1: so, and some of them, some of them are predictive as well. Like, I mean, with mm-hmm. the the case of the Swedish rockets people were seeing these rockets before they were truly being invented before they were tr- but i mean only by a few years mm-hmm. so it's like it's almost as if the phenomena was having a precognition of what was anticipating you know and anticipating the space race it's almost like our belief is sort of being led or guided somehow yeah I-, I think so yeah
2: Agreed. I was asked uh, recently, you know, do you think we'll ever know what UFOs really are? And I think I bummed out the uh, the interviewer and I said, no, I think it's always going to be a step ahead of us. Um, I don't know if it means to do that. I just think it's so far advanced uh, and/or and or technological that it can do that, that it can help guide us. Um, and maybe that's good. Maybe it'll be good for humanity eventually. Uh, I,
1: I hope so. I I, I do. Yeah. If, <laughs> if not,
2: it's like the biggest Trojan horse I can imagine. Exactly
1: the cosmic the cosmic trickster. Because yeah. sometimes sometimes people people re- you know they relate very good experiences and they feel that they are better for this, and then others uh, have had these horrendous experiences. It's almost as if the phenomena itself, when stripped away of all these descriptors, is really indifferent to what's going on young mm-hmm. um, Carl young getting back to him quickly uh, he he noted this and he was already looking at UFOs in 1947 as well um, but he noted that uh, his in his conclusions he felt that this that they were psychic manifestations through a collective consciousness and he felt that the UFOs back in ancient times were the gods this is what people were seeing um, they it wasn't that they were mistaking aliens but it was appropriate for their time. And they were seeing gods in the sky. And now, just prior to the space race, uh, we're seeing spaceships. We're, right. we're being almost guided and driven to look beyond this planet.
2: Right. It, it seems yeah. like, you know, at one time it was these were gods. Now it's these are aliens. What's next? You know, what, what is next? And whatever that is, it. Always reflects back to us as humans, whether it's gods or aliens, and that's where the whole, you know, sociological aspect of this entire thing, I think, resides. Is it's always a reflection of us, no matter what we believe it to be, no matter what it might be. Um, again,
1: exactly. That, well. That's why sometimes prayer can work. Yeah. You know, it can work for some people. It's it's probably won't work for someone who doesn't believe in it, in <laughs> prayer. But if someone has that faith, obviously there's there is you know there's evidence to show that it does work for some people. Yes. And you're so right. I think it's gonna morph. Maybe not within our lifetime, I don't know. I I, I kind of am excited to see it if it does, <laughs> but <laughs> I think that eventually it will be morphed into something
0: else. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Um well there's other one other case I wanted to touch on. Susan, um, this happened in Woodstock, New York, which we're all familiar with. Um, would you care to tell us a little bit about Scott Rogo and this amazing story about this young couple?
0: Oh,
1: yes, Scott Rogo. He, he was one of the few parapsychologists, um, and he wrote a book, The Haunted Universe, uh, that is now available again, I believe, through Anomalous Books. You can get some of his, his stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, he's no longer with us um, a very tragic case with Scott Rogo. He was, he was murdered and it's, it's an unsolved murder to this day. Um, yeah, yeah. So very, a lot of high strangeness surrounds him as well. Um, but he, he was a, a parapsychologist that really tried to take UFOs seriously. And, and he investigated this very strange case in Woodstock and I'll just, I'll relate a little bit of it to you. And you can tell me, like, is this a UFO encounter or is it a poltergeist? Yeah,
2: let's hear it verbatim. I'd love to.
1: Okay. So, yeah, I'm going to tell you right from my essay here. In the the spring of 1966, a young couple who were renting a small house in a semi-forested area of Woodstock uh, in New York noticed these six greenish lights that were about six feet in diameter in a nearby field. Uh, now, on another occasion, they saw something flying close to their car and move towards a wooded area while making like this high pitched sound like a like a vacuum cleaner droning is how they describe it. Mm-hmm. Now, they heard these sounds many times over a period of several months. Then one afternoon, the, uh, the sound seemed to stop moving and stayed stationary over the house and the woman looked at all the electrical equipment in the house, and she couldn't find a source. Uh, It seemed to be located inside the house's walls. Now, this is something that we see again in poltergeist cases. The couple verified this from outside of the house, and they couldn't see anything at all strange, like, within the wall. But when they looked at the nearby field, they saw green lights again, and a similar, like, a red one that was... I guess like a little orb was moving away from each other until they disappeared. Uh, so this really frightened them. Uh, it was a frightening experience. Um, but that was not everything that was, that was going to happen. Uh, they also heard a man's voice, like a disembodied voice, uh, sounds of someone walking around their house again, disembodied, uh, and they were really panicked by this point. Um, and, uh, and and soon after, they found, like, this patch of grass near their house that was flat and sort of scorched, something that you would find in, in you know, in a UFO landing case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this went on for an entire summer until they just, I guess, they finally had enough of it and, and they left. They left the, the location. But, again, if, if you look at this, these are people that are having UFO experiences while at the same time having ghostly experiences (laughs) so they're they're kind of concurrent and you know there can be the argument made that well you know correlation is not necessarily causation just because they're happening concurrently they could be two separate events and there can be that case made but you know what we have so many overwhelming cases like this like the one that you described to me Mm-hmm. that um and that's just one of uh, who knows how many thousands or hundreds of thousands in the history of UFOs on this planet and you know it it's starting to get like no you you can't ignore this stuff it seems to coincide and often
2: absolutely you know? and you know many researchers within the UFO field or the paranormal field or uh you know the parapsychological field uh we tend to edit all the time if it doesn't fit our box of ufo or eth or poltergeist uh we will brush it aside to bring forth the um you know the preconceived notions we might have of what this experience was um and we're all guilty of it sometimes but i think the responsible researchers will like you said Write down everything. And they might be connected or they might not. Uh, who are we to say? But I think by editing from the start, uh, we're already doing poor research. We're already, uh, you know, tainting the experience, as it were.
1: Oh, well, exactly. And, and you see that, too, in, in some of the online forums where you might have someone come up and, and post some very strange things. And then you have more of these nuts and bolts you know, UFO people that are, you know, they're, they're, they're poo-pooing on it or saying now, nah, are they're making this person out to be crazy. And, you know, I, and I understand to a point that, that some of the people involved in ufology, they want to, they, they feel they need to bring some sort of scientific respectability, but this is certainly not the way you're going to go about it is by discounting large reams of information that just doesn't fit into what you feel should be a good UFO case. It's the same thing with saying, you know, oh, you know, a person is a pilot or they're this, they're a better witness. Well, not necessarily. We all have eyes. We all have ears. No one person is going to be better than another person as being a, an experience. And, and I want to certainly hear everything. And, and that's what I tell people when I talk to them, just tell me everything, you know, no judgment here. Because you know what? I can't judge. I I know that I've had very strange experiences, so I'm certainly not going to judge anyone else. And I I think we need to bring these types of experiences and cases to the fore and so that people understand. This is a very complex, complex uh, issue, and it, it can't just be, you know, like swept under the rug certain things because it might make others sound a little crazy or... You know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you you know what I'm saying? I think I think, again, preaching to the choir here um, and and also being respectful of people's feelings and and how we leave them, because, you know, these are real human beings and what you want to believe may have or may not happen, even if you believe that you can debunk something. um, This person, they've taken this in as as an actual experience and they're experiencing it as they're telling it. Mm-hmm. This is this is how they have perceived it. So it is very real in that sense. Um so you have to always be mindful of that, I think, too. You
2: Agreed. Know? Yeah. And, you know, the beauty of science and philosophy and uh sociology and uh belief in general is that it can always change, you know. Um, yeah. there's the dogma to uh religion, but other than that, like, these things are constantly evolving and changing and being built upon. So uh, I couldn't agree more. Um,
1: Absolutely.
2: In terms of researchers, Susan, uh, are there any individuals who really inspire you or anyone you could recommend to our listeners to check out in terms of, like, what you're looking at currently in the UFO study?
1: Um. Currently, the two current, my two, I guess main inspiration points um, are going to be my friend, uh, Dr. Eric Ouellette, and my colleague, uh, who I helped with uh, his first book, Illuminations. I did the editing on it, and I did some of the background research. Uh, Some of his ideas on sociology um, in regards to UFO cases and and the large waves uh, is very inspirational to me. Um, so I would recommend his book. It's called Illuminations, the UFO Experience as a Parapsychological Event. Wonderful and, book.
2: I'm making my way through it.
1: Yeah, and look, look for a, another book soon on on the similar topic um, from Eric. And, cool. Yeah, so there's there's more coming from him. My second one is, is not someone that is well-known in north america but is very well known in europe and that is dr massimo teodorani who i also quote and cite in the essay quite a bit and he has a book in english it's the first one he has many books in italian but this is the first english book it's called the hyperspace of consciousness um, and it is it's a bit of a heavy read because this is astrophysics, but it does really get into several different hypotheses that revolve around the paranormal and UFOs. And he does talk about the importance of synchronicity. Um, he even gets into, he, he did some interesting work uh, with a medium, a, a French medium, uh, and he, he tries to give a bit of a science to spirit communication. Um, and, and I just, I think it's a wonderful book. It's, it actually, he has more than one hypothesis in here and the hypothesis, they compete with each other, which is like, how cool is that? And, um, yeah, he talks about how, um, with some of these like light balls that, that show intelligence, um, that, uh, that perhaps there is an intelligence behind them. Perhaps they're, perhaps they're a life form that we just don't even know yet. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is coming from a professional scientist. So, again, I would say Massimo Teodorani, the hyperspace of consciousness. Um, anyone who wants a basic idea, I, I would say anything Jacques Vallee. Mm-hmm. You know, start back 1969, Passport to Magonia, still relevant today. today. Um, anything from Dr. Hynek, uh I also am a big subscriber to George Hansen's theories of the trickster and the paranormal.
0: Yes. Um,
1: and that's, a, that is another kind of difficult read. So I, I would suggest picking it up and just as he does himself, go chapter, like just read one chapter and you can go back and forth in the book and just try to soak some of this stuff in. It's really heady stuff, but it's it's very good. It gets you thinking. Um, I would also like to, and this is out of print. Uh, just mention uh, Harley Rutledge's book, Project Identification, which is for more perhaps um, people that want to go out into the field and study UFOs. Uh, This is a field study uh, of, and and very well done, scientific study of UFOs. And um, it also gets into the high strangeness because the scientists who went out to study objectively these ufos that were occurring at the time in piedmont uh in the united states in missouri um they started having high strangeness experiences with uh with synchronicity and 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 possible telepathy and that with with these light bulbs and and to his credit he does not edit that out uh Mm -hmm. as a scientist he gave he gave full disclosure that you know there's there's an intelligence or there's there's seemingly an intelligence or something going on a little bit more than just strange lights that appear in a field kind of thing. So awesome. that, that, yeah.
2: The rebel of scientific uh UFO research. Love it.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. So those those would be my recommendations right now. Um for anyone that's kind of interested in you know.
2: Great. I stretching I'm stretching their, their mind down. a little. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um
2: well what are you working on now, Susan? Uh what can we expect from you in the near future?
1: i have uh, a couple of projects that i'm running uh right now. These are experiments i have been um i've been been incorporating um magic
0: mm-hmm.
3: uh, which
1: uh the practice of magic with uh with uFO manifestation and trying to i've been using magic sort of as a tool to um to sort of uh, Invoke, provoke, uh, interact with the phenomena itself. So I, I really can't get into too much details. I am, I'm collaborating again with Dr. Uh, Teodorani on that, on one of the projects. And I have a, a group that's another group that's, that's doing a, a project that is inspired by, I don't know if you know, the, the work of the Owens and the Philip Phenomena which was a, a ghost that they tried to create in the lab here in Toronto. In yes,
2: Maine. I remember hearing about that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so I'm, I was inspired by that to take some ideas and formulate some experiments, which I am doing currently. Wow. Uh, and that hopefully will be the basis for uh, a book, a forthcoming book on UFOs, magic, synchronicity, the phenomena.
2: <laughs> I hope so. My god, that sounds extremely compelling.
1: Yeah, and it's it's interesting because um Greg Bishop is working on uh on similar stuff and and we were working on these things and we had not met at that point uh mm-hmm. and touched base and it's interesting that we kind of just started doing these things at the same time. So maybe maybe the UFOs are guiding us down that path of phenomena.
2: <laughs> it's very possible. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: Greg's yeah. a great guy. Uh, I couldn't think of a better person to be connected to in terms of uh, his co-creation hypothesis of, like you said, uh, are we manifesting the phenomena somehow? Or are we, you know, in tandem with it? Uh, yeah. On either end of the spectrum. Uh, it's very fascinating. Um,
1: exactly. Exactly. And if it is an intelligence, is it is it giving us... Um, is it giving us like sort of what we, we need or what we can comprehend or cope with, um, you know, and that is what it's pooling from? Is it pooling from the greater collective unconsciousness or from ourselves, you know, um, and, and creating these experiences and uh, that we can comprehend where, where it's something absolutely, you know, different, it's I kind of I kind of look at UFOs like dreams, too. There's usually a lot of symbolic content. So we're, we're having a dream that may be silly. Right. Um, you know, but if you if you examine what the dream is, then there's a symbolism and then you can kind of maybe equate it to what's going on in your in your waking world and go, aha. So this is my dream trying to tell me something. I kind of feel the UFOs are are somewhat in line with that. Mm-hmm. They're trying to tell us something in, in a way that we can maybe understand right. symbolically. Right. Yeah,
2: And and it's up to us to try to decipher that. Yeah. It's not just yeah. spoon-fed to us by whatever the phenomenon is. Ugh.
1: Yes, I'm also working on a model um, I, and, and just different parapsychological lenses and, and modeling to try and maybe um, put uh, some UFO cases through the, those models to see if, again, we can come up with some better data or maybe some better questions. So uh, that's something more that I'm doing with Dr. Ouellette is uh, we're kind of just just trying to look at different ideas and, and, and different disciplines and kind of trying to come up with some different models that we can uh, use to examine these cases with. I, I did that with um, a ghost case, uh, which is the famous Morton, the Cheltenham ghost, which is the, the lady in black. Mm. And I came up with some interesting, um, by looking at the the witness, focusing on her and putting her in the context of her time period. Um, One of the last questions I want to sort of get at with you susan is um there's this
2: so many years of the term ufo which we all know stemmed from uh the government it was Mm -hmm. part of project blue book but we have this new term sort of insidiously creeping in uh made sort of mainstream by hillary clinton at one point um and that's uap (laughs) but it's been a long it's been around longer than many people think um are you a yeah. proponent of this new terminology in terms of what we might be dealing with of UAP?
1: Um, again, uh, with U- UFO and UAP, to me, I'm really a fan of neither of these terms. Um, they're too descriptive, in my opinion. UAP first actually came about, I believe, in the mid-90s. Uh, again, it was a government term um, in a booklet put out by the uh, Ministry of Defense in, in the U.K., And I think that's the first place that I saw it. And then later, um, I believe it was Ted Rowe of NARCAP who really said, no, we're going to push for UAP. And it is better than UFO. But I feel that I prefer personally to, when I think about it, I think about it as phenomena. It is the phenomena. And I try to remove all the descriptors I can because I feel that as we're layering on these descriptors, um, we're getting farther away from the core of whatever this may be. So the only time I really use UFO or UAP is when I'm talking with because it's it's they're so popular with witnesses or or other researchers that like to use them. I will use that, but when in I'm contemplating or even writing, I use I use phenomena. Uh, that's just the, yeah. just the phenomena because we don't know. And again. I, they're not always flying i was sometimes just gonna say they're not landed. always in the air yeah <laughs> exactly exactly and uap might be okay for a, a, a section or a small uh, view of the of, of the ufo phenomena where you might have like these light balls sometimes they follow aircraft in that um, which is something that narcap deals with uh is is pilot sightings uh so that that might be something even a little bit different That you know so that might be appropriate for those cases but when you look at the high strangeness and the totality the 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 total of this what's going on um i think just just let's call it the phenomena cuz we don't know right it's yes. it's there what it is anyone's guess <laughs> <laughs>
2: Uh it seems like everything <laughs> we talked about tonight is anyone's guess susan but uh <laughs> this was such an amazing conversation uh my mind has been opened now more than ever and i think that's what this is all about uh where where can we find out more about what you're doing
1: well i i tend to uh put up my latest projects and things that i'm i'm working on on my my website which is uh susanstclaire.com uh, and you can find me on various social media too, which are linked through that website. Perfect. So yeah, so yeah, SusanStClair.com, you'll awesome. find
2: me. I was just reading one of your articles, the one you mentioned about the, uh, you know, the woman in the black dress. Was it?
1: Yes, the woman in black, which may woman or may not, black. yeah, may or may not have inspired the story and that later became the movie, mm. uh, the popular movie. Uh, that is a very well documented case uh that was done by the society of psychical research and the actual witness at the time was a medical student oh. and yes and she tried to make a science out of this this woman in black apparition that she kept seeing she actually tried to catch it mm-hmm. <laughs> she devised <laughs> um, so I, I but it's very very well documented and and i try to dissect it a little bit and and more away from the apparition Mm -hmm. and looking at the witnesses and putting them in the social context of their time period and some interesting stuff comes about from that yeah
2: that's fascinating well yeah um i highly suggest all our listeners go check out your website for various other articles uh related and not related to that um Susan, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm sure people are going to uh, be visiting your site very shortly and uh, look forward to the work you did in the upcoming book, UFOs, Reframing the Debate, and all of your projects. I think it's sorely needed in a field that is so dated and needs to be shooken up uh, to the core. So again, I uh, thank you for joining us today.
1: And thank you for having me. And I feel the same way about you, you know, and let's, let's, let's just keep collaborating and sharing and, you know, it's, it's, it's all good.
2: Share yeah. your work, children, share your work.
1: Share, because that's, that is the cornerstone of science is, you know, you got to, got to share, right? <laughs> and be, op- and be open to other people questioning and, and saying, you know, it's all good as long as it's done respectfully. Absolutely.
2: All, all right. Thank you so much, Susan.
1: All right.
2: Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. Be sure to check out Susan's website, SusanSTClaire.com, and be on the lookout for both our essays in the upcoming anthology, UFOs, Reframing the Debate, edited by Robbie Graham. It will be available through White Crow Books on May 29th. Visit whitecrowbooks.com for more info. Please consider sharing, rating, and reviewing the show on iTunes or wherever you may listen from. It truly helps the show get more exposure. And who doesn't want that, right? Also, if you want to reach me with stories and guest or topic suggestions, email spreg at somewhereintheskies.com. And if you're looking for some extra reading material this week, I've got a stockpile of interesting articles over at somewhereintheskies.com. Just click on the article tab. And while you're at it, check out the book on Amazon in paperback and ebook. I gotta pay them podcast bills, guys. Alright, I'll be back next Monday with an all-new episode and a very special and controversial guest. It'll be a fun one, so definitely tune in. Thank you so much for joining me, and remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching somewhere in the skies.
1: This has been a Third Kind Production. To learn more, visit thirdkindproductions.com.
3: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more.